0: Well, good morning. Um, Welcome to this uh, Easter um, resurrection day, as we like to say, um, scattered worship. My name is Andy Lawrence, and it's my joy and privilege to get to serve as um, one of the pastors of the Point Community Church. I've been saying the Point Community Church located right here in the heart of Frankfurt, but we're not in the heart of Frankfurt. This isn't the church. It's something we say often, the church isn't It isn't a gathering that you attend. Um, The church isn't a building that you walk into, but it's a people. And so wherever you are, we just say, welcome to you. Um, At Easter, we have a a tradition within the church where we say that usually the the person on the stage will say, um, Christ is risen. And then uh, the church will respond with... He is risen indeed. And so if you would, maybe you've already been doing that, but for those of you that are on Facebook Live, if you would drop in the He is risen indeed into the the comment section, and that's just a way for you to to just say amen to the truth that what we celebrate this morning is bigger than COVID-19, that we celebrate a Christ who is risen, who is risen from the dead. And because of that, we um, have just great hope. We have great hope in tough times, in tumultuous times. We have great hope because the grave is empty. Christ has ascended. And it's my joy to get to proclaim to you a bloody cross, an empty grave, and an occupied throne. And that's what I get to do uh, this morning. Before we get started, um, let's just say a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I just wanna give you thanks. Thank you, Jesus, Thank you that you have conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, that the justice of the Father has been satisfied by you, Christ, and Jesus, we, it's, it's our joy just to preach and proclaim you this morning. Be near to us, Christ, in your name we pray, amen. Now, I know what some of you may have been thinking, what an odd Text of scripture for Easter Sunday morning uh, service. Leviticus, are you joking me? Has this guy gone Corona crazy? What's he thinking of? It's our Super Bowl, and you're gonna be preaching in and through the book of Leviticus. But listen, Leviticus, I did, we didn't just choose this arbitrarily, but we've been working our way through the storyline of the Bible. We're kind of working our way through the, the high points of the Bible. And so we've started in Genesis. We made our way through Exodus. And so today we find ourselves in Leviticus, and we find ourselves in within the, the text that covers what's called the Day of Atonement. And as we studied it and looked at it, it was like, goodness, what a perfect time to talk about the cross and the resurrection of Christ as it fits within the day of atonement. So Leviticus, yes, it's an odd book. Yes, it's a book that's all about laws. Now, I know that many of us, we were down with the Ten Commandments. Like as you read the Ten Commandments in Exodus and they're covered again in Deuteronomy, and as you read them, you think like, okay, I understand the Ten Commandments, at least the latter part of the Ten Commandments. I mean, we all probably would agree that murder is wrong, murder is bad. We tell our kids lying is bad and wrong, especially black lies, right? We uh, kind of can wrap our minds around envying. We understand the, the green-eyed monster. We understand jealousy. But when you get to Leviticus, there's all these laws that seem so, so arbitrary. It seems like there's a law against everything. There's fashion laws that are even more strict than you can't wear white past Labor Day, or now you can do that, but God's laws, they don't erase polyester, some for us, sometimes it's in, sometimes it's out. With God, it's always out. Spandex, it's always out as well. Even when it's worn underneath your umbros, it's out. Hairstyle laws, um, for those of us, uh, especially the men, we're looking a little Levitical as we're letting our hair grow long. And some of us are growing uh, beards. And with the hairstyle laws, that's the law. Beards are good, uh, razors are out. There's all these food laws, like, for example, cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers, unfortunately, are out. But in Leviticus, it says that it's, uh, it's illegal, it's wrong, it's against the law to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so the way that that law was interpreted is you can't eat meat and you can't eat dairy. So cheeseburgers are out. Tilapia is in, but catfish, shrimp, crawfish etouffee, all of that's out. And it even pangs my heart to say this, but Bacon, bacon is out as well. And then there's just a whole list and host of odd civil laws. And even for some folks outside of Christianity, especially for some that may be questioning Christianity or maybe skeptical or even antagonistic against Christianity, You may look at a book like Leviticus and you may say, hey, you know what? It appears that you as Christians, you're just picking and choosing which laws you're going to abide by and which laws that you aren't. And maybe that's been your thought, or maybe it's even your thoughts now. And hey, let me just say that's understandable. You got to understand the the scope of what's happening in Leviticus, that really the laws fall within um, three different categories, there are civil laws that apply to the nation of Israel. There are ceremonial laws that apply to the Jewish people. And then there are moral laws. And those moral laws are the laws that are binding upon all of humanity. They are a reflection of the character and nature of God. And they are the path. They are the blueprint for human flourishing. But let me just say this. The purpose of Leviticus is this. The application, maybe I should say, of Leviticus for us is this. It teaches us two truths. Truth number one is this truth, that our sin is much worse than we imagined. And that's bad news. But the second truth that it teaches us is this, that God is more gracious than we hoped. That first, let's talk about, that our sin is much worse than we imagine. That Leviticus is basically 26 chapters. It's 27 chapters long, but it's 26 chapters where it is declaring to us that God is holy and we are not. And then the one chapter, the chapter we're gonna be in today, it's the good news that God is more gracious than we ever thought of being. But first we must start with the bad, that sin is sinful Now, I know you know that, but listen to me. Sin is sinful, not just because of the action taking place, but sin is sinful because of the object, because of who it is against. That usually when we talk about sin, that you and I, we just usually focus in on the action and we don't really think about the object unless it's us who are sinned against. But listen, what if I told you That sin is increasingly sinful, not just because of the action, but all sin is is wrong. It's bad. It's egregious because of the object to whom we sin against. Like, let's take a sin, for example. I could get mad and I can go and I could kick a wall right now. And you would understand that, well, the action of getting mad that that was wrong, but yet it wouldn't be that big of a deal because I just kicked a wall. Hopefully I hadn't hurt myself too bad. Hopefully I'd learned my lesson. Don't lose your temper. But what if in my anger, instead of kicking a wall, what if I kicked my, my poor little dog? Well, you'd say, hold on a minute. Like that's worse. Wait, same action, different object. Or let's say that in my anger, I, heaven forbid, I kicked one of my children or I kicked my wife. Now, I've got a hurt foot and a black eye if I kick my wife. But let's say I kick one of my children. Well, now that's abuse, right? Same action, different object. And people would say, wait a minute, now you've abused your child and you should go to jail for that. Or let's even ratchet it up another notch. In my anger, what if I, I kicked the president, the president of the United States? Have you ever been that angry that you could roundhouse kick the president? I have. And let's say that I do that. Well, now guess what? Same, object, uh, same action, different object. And now I go to jail, no question asked. And I go to jail probably for a long time. Why? Because the, the object matters. Not just the action, but the object, the, the person that we sin against, it matters. And this is important because all sin in the Bible is first and foremost a sin against a holy God, all sin. In fact, King David, now we're gonna get there in our storyline of the Bible series that we're in, but King David will sin in an egregious way. King King David will commit adultery at best, but categorically probably fits further into into the category of rape with another woman, a woman by the name of Bathsheba, a friend's wife. And then King David will have that friend put to death. His action would be adultery, possibly rape and murder against these people. And yet in Psalm 51, when David finally comes to his senses and confesses and repents, David says this against you and you alone have I sinned, Lord, and done this evil in your sight. He's not lessening the sins that he's created against uh, Bathsheba and Uriah but rather he's increasing the weight of a sin before a holy and a righteous God. And what Leviticus is doing is Leviticus is declaring to us that you and everyone you know is a sinner. Let that rest on you for a second. You and everyone you know, even your grandma is a sinner. It is a sinner... And not just a small sinner, as I said, but an egregious sinner. Not just because of the actions that we've done, because maybe you could think about the actions in your in your life, and you may not, and you may say, like, you know, what they're really not all that bad. But it's not about just the actions; it's against the object and God as a holy, righteous God, God's standard of of living for his people has always been perfection. It's always been purity. That's his standard. It's kind of like hand sanitizer. Like hand sanitizer has always had the label on it that it kills 99.9% of of germs and viruses. And, And you know what? Three months ago, we wouldn't have cared. It would have been like, hey, hand sanitizer, yeah, great. That standard is good enough for me, 99.9. But now when we see that, we go, hold on a minute. Like, what's, uh, what viruses is it not killing? What germs is it not? C-? Do you have a hand sanitizer that is like complete and annihilate, uh, you know, that completely annihilates all germs that destroys everything? What hand sanitizer is that? Give that some to me. And in fact, as we talk about it, I mean, you can't talk about hand sanitizer without. You know, you, you, I mean, it's just that time, right? It's been 10 minutes since I sanitized anyway. Listen to me. God's standard has never changed. God's standard has always been for his people. 100% purity, absolute perfection, absolute holiness. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God no one reaches that standard and that's what Leviticus is about it's declaring every one of us to be a sinner but there is good news in the book of Leviticus and it's found in Leviticus 16 it's found centered around this day of atonement that is a prescribed by God to his people as a means where they can where they can get rid of their sins it's prescribed To God as a a ritual where sinners can be forgiven, where the dirty can be made clean, where the guilty can find their forgiveness. That all of Leviticus is either leading up to that 16th chapter and the day of atonement or it's flowing from the day of atonement. This is the biggest. This is the Super Bowl day, the Super Bowl Sunday for the children of Israel. It's one day of the year what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to focus on a couple aspects of the Day of Atonement. The first aspect that I want to focus in on is I want to focus in on where the Day of Atonement took place. And that place is called the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle is huge. It's huge in our understanding um, in the, even the storyline of the Bible. The contrast has taken place in Genesis in the Garden of Eden versus what we find in Exodus in Egypt. The contrast isn't just the condition of God's people, but the contrast is the absence of God that in the garden of Eden, God dwelt with his people. But because of our sin, then God has uh, kind of been absent from the midst of his people. He may show up in various times and in different places and call a man like Abraham to himself, appear to Jacob. We've been looking at this, appear to Moses. But now something fascinating and gracious is happening that God once again is going to dwell with his people in this tent of meetings called the tabernacle. And the construction of the tabernacle, it's laid out for us in the book of Exodus. And in that, um, it, if you could think of it maybe like this, it is um, concentric, not circles, but concentric rectangles. There is um, the, the, the biggest one would be the, the courtyard. And then next on inside would be the holy place. And then finally, inside of the holy place is the most holy place or the, or the, or the uh, holy of holies. And that is where the Lord will dwell. The very presence of God will dwell in that place, in the most holy place, the holy of holies. And this place was forbidden. This place was forbidden under penalty of death that no one could saunter into the holy of holies except one man on one particular day, the high priest on the day of atonement. That between the holy of holies, the most holy place, and the, even the holy place, there is a, there's, a, there's a thick curtain that, that, that's put up there. It, 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 the curtain symbolizes, it doesn't necessarily contain God's presence, but it symbolizes, it's symbolic saying that even though God dwells among his people, his people do not dwell with him. His people cannot enter. That curtain is like a huge do not enter sign between God and his people. And the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, but he would enter it with fear and trembling that any fraction or misstep would result in the death of the high priest. And on this one day, the high priest would enter, but he would enter in covered in blood, sprinkling blood. There would be a blood of the sacrifice on behalf of the high priest and his family on, on, on the whole community and especially on behalf of the people. First, we looked at the where it took place, the tabernacle. Now let's talk some more about the high priest who performed it. The high priest is a man like we are men. He's a man who is a mediator. He's representing the people to God. And this man, he would go in and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of a sacrifice. And even before the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, even before the day of atonement would take place, the high priest would have to be ritualistically cleansed. This would start about a week before the day of atonement, about a week before he would be quarantined. He would be put into seclusion. He'd be put into lockdown so he could touch, accidentally touch no unclean thing. And then the day before, the night before, the day of atonement, the high priest would stay up all that night reading the Bible, reading the Torah and praying so that no unclean thing would enter into his mind. And then on the day of atonement, the day of atonement would start early that morning and it would start off with a ritualistic bath that the high priest would take. He'd be bathed from head to toe and this would be an outward sign of his need of an of a inward purity, that he would be needed to have all defilement washed away from him. And then he would be dressed in a a special garment, in a pure unstained white linen cloth, a robe would be put on. It was normally the clothes worn by a servant. On this particular day, he wouldn't don on the traditional ceremonial garb, but on this day, he would be put on this special linen robe. And now let's talk about what, what would be done on the day of atonement. The actions of the high priest that what would be done is there would be four different animal sacrifices to take place. There would be a sacrifice of a, sacrifice of a, of a bull and of a ram and of two goats. The bull would be sacrificed um, on behalf of the sins of the high priest. He would be a sin offering. The ram would be sacrificed as a burnt offering before the Lord. And then there would be two goats chosen. And the high priest, as we heard read for us in Leviticus 16, the high priest would cast lots. Basically, he would flip a coin as to which of the goats would serve which function. So one goat would be a sacrificial goat. The other goat would be what's called the scapegoat. The sacrificial goat would would become the, the bloody victim. It would be his life given in exchange for another. Throughout the reading of the text, you heard this word atonement. And what that word atonement means, it means this, it means that to cover over someone's death with death, that that goat would serve symbolically as a substitute for his people, that the penalty of sin is death and this goat, is dying in the place of his people. That his blood, this goat's blood, it represents both life and death. His blood being shed represents death, but what's necessary to life is is blood. If my blood needs to be inside me for me to live, and so it represented both. It represented, the blood represented both life and death. It represented the death of the sacrificial animal to which the blood was let, but it also represented life as his life was now sprinkled in the most holy place. And that's what the high priest would do as he walked into the, 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 into the holy place that he would sprinkle. It was purification. Life covers death that our sins deserve a violent death and this animal has died as a substitute. There is the other goat, which is the scapegoat. The high priest would take this goat and what the high priest would do is the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the, of the scapegoat. And what's happening here is the principle of transference. He's symbolically transferring the, the sins of the people are being transferred to this goat and then after this was done this goat would be taken out and let loose into the wilderness this is the, the concept of azazel we don't really fully understand where azazel is but it's kind of basically like into the wilderness it's gone it's it's let loose and What they say, even by tradition, which would happen is another priest would find that goat and then would help that goat off of a cliff somewhere because the last thing you want is for that goat to wander back into your camp. Kind of like, oh, I thought my sins were gone. It's a yo-yo. Nope, nope, they're back. And so the Azazel even could symbolize this, this final resting place for the scapegoat. Now, listen, I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag here that everything that is taking place on the day of atonement it forecasts and predicts what Jesus will do on good friday night and what Jesus will do on resurrection sunday morning that what the resurrection is is the resurrection on that first resurrection day. The resurrection is a declaration of the God who is above all, the creator of everything. It is a declaration that that is the true day of atonement. It's a declaration that Christ's work on the cross, that, it, that, that the day of atonement was a reenactment. For or, or yeah, was a reenactment. It was a rehearsal for what's happening on the cross with Christ. And what it is, is it is God declaring that he has received it. He's received the work of the, the real, true high priest, Jesus Christ. He's res- received the work of the, of the sacrifice that has been made. In fact, we could say this, that Jesus' resurrection, it means that Jesus was God Who has come to dwell among his people. And what it means for you and I, how this is applied to us as it is applied to us, is that you and I, that we can know God in a real and intimate relationship. In fact, as John, the writer of the gospel of John, as John writes his letter, he even opens it up in the first chapter by saying this and the word meaning Christ, it's a reference to Christ. The word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. That word that he's using dwelt is the same word that could say he was tabernacled among us. That Jesus's resurrection Is God saying that all of Jesus' claims about himself, when he said that I am not just a man, but I am God, that they are true and that Jesus has come and he's lived among us? He's been tabernacled among us. And not only has he come and then left again, but what Christ has done is Christ has opened up a new way for us. The writer of Hebrews says that in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. In fact, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as Jesus gives up his spirit and dies, that the, what becomes the, the temple It was the tabernacle, but then it will become the temple, which is just a permanent tabernacle inside the temple with the same setup. There is the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. That is a sign that God, that um, yet that God dwells among his people, but his people cannot dwell with God. That very curtain is ripped, four inch thick curtain ripped from the top to the bottom and it is God saying that there's been a new and better and living way that has been opened up where we can now dwell with God. It is Christ's flesh is that curtain and he's opened up that way. That the encounter of the presence of God that was once limited to the high priest and only once a year that he would enter in with fear and trembling, it is now offered daily to you and I. God's children can go in with joy and eager anticipation and even confidence, even boldness. We can enter in to the presence of God. We can know him and be known by him all because of the sacrifice of Christ. That when you and I pray, our prayers, even though sometimes they may feel like they just hit the ceiling and they fall back again. When we pray and we feel like our prayers are not heard, that is so untrue that God is a father in heaven who hears us. And when you feel alone, when you feel isolated, when you feel all quarantined in, that is not true. Christ dwells with us. He sends his spirit to dwell with his people and to dwell with his children. That Jesus' resurrection means this. It means that he was an acceptable high priest who has mediated a new covenant between us and God. And what that means for us, it means that you can be saved from your sins in order to serve the holy God. That every ritual that the high priest underwent before even, and during the day of atonement, Jesus has done those same things. That, as I said, that began a week before time. And this week we've st- we have celebrated the Holy Week. That Jesus's preparation for Good Friday, it began with his triumphal entry on Sunday. And almost every day we've celebrated Jesus doing something, all of it to be prepared for what happens on the, the real day of atonement, that Good Friday that as the high priest would stay up all night praying, we see that Jesus stays up all night praying the night before his death. The high priest would be stripped of his ornate robe and be donned with a white linen robe, the robe of a servant in order to show his humility and humanity as he represented the people. Jesus too will be stripped of his robe. It was a seamless robe, the same type of robe that the high priest would have worn. We see that the Roman guards, they cast lots at the foot of the cross for this robe. Although Jesus won't be given a new robe, but Jesus will be crucified naked. But again, that is significant. Remember in Genesis 3, we saw Adam and Eve after they sinned. What do we see them as? We saw them as naked and they're hiding from God. But nakedness is a sign of shame and Jesus is taking on Our shame is being transferred to Jesus and Jesus is being crucified naked on a cross. The high priest would be bathed in pure water as a ritualistic bath, but Jesus won't be bathed in pure water, but Jesus will be bathed in human spit as Roman guards spit upon him. Jesus will enter into the holy of holies Not by the blood of a sacrificial goat, but by his own blood, he will enter in. Jesus has become our high priest. And his resurrection from death means this, that he was an acceptable high priest. That's the declaration of the book of Hebrews time and time again. And that by this work, he has secured for you and I eternal life. Eternal life, we've been saved and saved forever. Saved presently at the moment when we confess our sin before a holy and righteous God. At the moment when he makes us new and we'll be saved for eternity. And we've been saved under what purpose? A purpose of to serve God. We've been saved to serve God. Jesus's resurrection, it also means this. It means that Jesus was the perfect sacrificial goat, which means this. It's even almost like we say about, we say about uh, sports stars are the goat, the greatest of all time. And Jesus is the greatest of all time when it comes to a sacrificial goat, the greatest of all time sacrifice given to us. And this is what that means for us, church. It means this, that you and I can be forgiven of all our sins. That word atonement, Something dies in the place of someone else. That is what's happening. In fact, you can, you can say that the gospel, you can put the gospel in just four simple words. Jesus in my place. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered for the sins of the people. And lastly, Jesus. Jesus' resurrection means that Jesus was the scapegoat who has carried our sins away forever. And what that means for us, is it means that there is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That no one can condemn you. Not even that little voice in the back of your head. You know, it's the, probably the, the, the most, the unpardonable sin in our culture the most quoted verse of the Bible for in modern times is, it's no longer John 3, 16, but it's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. The one thing that you and I that we hate the most is the thought of someone judging us. And I believe that is true because inwardly in our conscience, we know that we will stand before a God who has judged us. I think what our... our, our re, Visceral reaction to the thought of someone judging us is really what we're saying in that is it's a declaration that in our conscience that, that we're guilty, we feel that. We know that they may judge us and they would probably find us wanting. And so we react to that by saying, no one can judge me. And we even say, but God can judge me. And that's right. And God's standard is absolute holiness. And we feel that even though we may say no one else can judge us, most of us spend most of our spend a lot of time judging ourselves and self-condemning and beating up. And listen, Jesus is that perfect scapegoat that when you and I, when we place faith in Christ, it's the principle of transference. We're laying a hold of the cross of Christ. We're laying a a hold of Jesus's crown of thorns upon his head our sins are being transferred to that and Jesus is carrying them off as the psalmist says as far as the east is to the west Jesus carries our sins away from us I know of no greater and better news than to say that Jesus's resurrection, the empty grave, the empty tomb means that Jesus is the scapegoat that has taken and carried our sins to Azazel, wherever that is. But it's a long way away from me. Praise God. The prophet Micah even says that our sins are buried in the deepest oceans. Corey Ten Boom, she said, then don't ever ha- and, and, and we must hang a no fishing sign in that place. That's that work of condemnation and self-condemnation. Listen, Jesus' resurrection means that Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice on the altar. That both the sacrificial goat that pours out its blood and the scapegoat that carries the sin of the people far away from the camp, that he lived a perfect life to offer the perfect death. And by his stripes, we are healed. Forgiven and we're made clean. That Jesus has torn down the dividing wall to give us intimate access to the Father. And Jesus has, re- has achieved for us redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. And so let me just close out by asking you, we say this here at The Point, I think I said it maybe even on Good Friday, the gospel changes everything and the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that Jesus is the greater tabernacle. It's the good news that Jesus is the greater high priest. It's the good news that Jesus is the greater, even sacrificial goat and the greater scapegoat. It's all of those things. And when we rightly understand that, when we rightly understand that, then we live our lives for him. We receive him by faith. And then we ultimately, we live our lives in response to that ultimate day of atonement. We live our lives as a sacrifice of praise to Jesus. We forgive because we have been forgiven. How we behave in our marriages, it flows from what Christ has has exemplified his love for his church. We even give, we give as a reflection of the generosity and the grace that God has shown us that as the Christian, what we say over and over and over again, Our Christian lives is lived in response to Christ. Christ says, you have been to us. May we be to others. So have you received the free salvation offer that God has offered? Have you accepted Christ's pardon, the sacrifice given? Are you living in light of that grace and that forgiveness, your sins being carried away? Are you living in joy and freedom from condemnation? Are you responding appropriately to the gospel in every area of your life? Let's pray. Jesus, your cross and resurrection and ascension on high, it changes everything for us. And Jesus, we give thanks to you. We love you. Jesus, thank you that by your stripes, we are healed and we're forgiven. Thank you, God, in your great grace that you would say, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be washed white as snow. As they're washed in the blood of you, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, we love you. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.